sorry I was a little late there. <laughs> I'm a software guy. Software is always late. So um, welcome. My name is Guy Kawasaki, and uh, I live in Silicon Valley. I am here today to talk to you about uh, a book that I just finished called Wise Guy. And in this book, I tell all these stories of my life, a uh, life in Silicon Valley, a life in technology. And uh, it's, I'm just so happy to be here. I, I've been kicking myself, you know, why did I wait for 14 times uh, before I came to the next web? This is a fantastic show. So I'm very happy to be here. Um, did you see that your father can dance? Did you learn that? And, yeah? Did he embarrass you? Yeah, <laughs> that's what fathers do, trust me. Uh, so I'm going to talk to you today about the lessons from a life in technology. And I'm so happy to be here. I just, I, I, I have never, ever come to a speech on a ferry. I have to say it. That was a first for me today. So uh, this is a picture I'll use to explain a little bit my context. Uh, this is a picture of the Macintosh division taken in 1984. I'm in the far upper left-hand corner. You cannot really see me. Uh, one of the mistakes I made in my career is that I didn't stand in the front of this very famous picture because, frankly, I had no idea that Apple would be as successful as it has become. Uh, a little bit about this group of people, the Macintosh division. It's probably the largest collection of egomaniacs in the history of America. And that's saying a lot because, as you know, America has a lot of egomaniacs. Uh, you know, back then, Apple was a, a successful company already. It had the Apple II division, which was making all the money because it was shipping Apple IIs. And there was the Macintosh division, which was spending all the money because we were still trying to complete the Macintosh. But uh, we were such arrogant people. Uh, I, I look back on those days with some chagrin. We were such arrogant people. Uh, we believed that we were hand-selected by Steve Jobs, so the rules didn't apply to us. And I'll, I'll give you some stories. So story number one is, you're seeing us in front of the Macintosh division building. We would not let Apple II division employees into that building. So if you can imagine working for a company where you work for the same company, but you're not allowed into the building of the company. And then the Macintosh division people quickly figured out that they were not being allowed into a building they had just paid for. And so that pissed them off a great deal. And so they came up with this great joke about the Macintosh division, which is how many Macintosh division employees does it take to screw in a light bulb? Uh, the answer is one. The Macintosh division employee holds up the light bulb and expects the universe to revolve around him. Uh, <laughs> Is, is, where's Boris? Boris, is, is Microsoft a sponsor of this? <laughs> do, do you want them to be a sponsor of this? You don't care? Okay, so the Microsoft, ver <laughs> the Microsoft version of this joke is how many Microsoft employees does it take to screw in a light bulb? And the answer is none, because Bill Gates has declared darkness the new standard. <laughs> so uh, arguably, the most important person in this picture is the person kneeling in the front. That's Steve Jobs, holding a Macintosh 128K. And one of the reasons why this photo is so significant is, this, is that this is the only known instance of Steve Jobs ever getting on his knees for anything in his life. 
whenever people find out that I work for the Macintosh division, they of course want a Steve Jobs story. All the movies, all the reports, all the blog posts, all the everything you've read, books, magazines, everything you've read and heard and seen about Steve Jobs is true. He was very difficult to work for, very demanding, but just a certifiable genius and visionary. Um, I would not be where I am today were it not for Steve Jobs. And there's nobody in this picture who regrets working for the Macintosh division. It was a, it was a privilege and an honor. So my, stop, my Steve Jobs story for you. So one day I'm in my cubicle, and Steve Jobs shows up with someone I had never seen in my life. And he says, Guy, what do you think of this company called Nowhere, K-N-O-W-A-R-E? It was an educational software company, knowledge software. And I said, well, Steve, it's a mediocre company with mediocre products. The products don't take advantage of the Macintosh graphical user interface. It's very simplistic, arithmetic, 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's not a strategic product. It's not a strategic company. Don't even think about it, Steve. And then Steve says, I want you to meet the CEO of Nowhere. <laughs> so welcome to my life. That's what working for Steve Jobs was like. Uh, on to the lessons. So I'm 64 years old, and it's taken me this long to acquire all this wisdom. And this is kind of a sweet spot for me because it took me this long to acquire it. And so previously, I could not write this book. And if I wait any longer, I'm going to forget the wisdom. So you're hitting me right as I got it, but before I lost it. So that's what this book is. And I'm going to give you the top 10 wisdoms of my life that I hope that you can take and you can, as Steve would say, dent the universe with the knowledge that I've acquired. Okay? So, um, the first thing that I figured out as I look back over my life is that you should always change a losing game. And this became so true for me as I look back on the life and the decisions of my great-grandparents and my grandparents. Uh, this is a picture of my family. My father is the tallest guy, the second guy from the left. Uh, my my great-grandfather and grandparents, they came from Japan to Hawaii. They left Japan because of a lack of opportunity, because they could not progress anymore. There was a lack of jobs. So they changed the losing game. They left Japan and they came to Hawaii. And with hindsight, I've now figured out that that's an attitude for life. If you are stuck in a place where you cannot progress, where the opportunities are not great enough, you cannot sit by and just let things happen to you. You need to change a losing game. Second thing that I learned is that education is the absolute key to success. You know, uh, I, I travel all over the world and everybody talks to me with Silicon Valley envy. You know, how do we make Berlin the next Silicon Valley? How do we make Austin the next Silicon Valley? How do we make everywhere the next Silicon Valley? And people think it's about the venture capital funding. It's about the uh, amount of infrastructure. You know, is there cloud-based services? Are there PR firms? Are there ad firms? Are there recruiters? And my observation is that the most important thing in an area, if you want to succeed in technology, is the quality of the engineering education. Get educated. Some pictures from my past. This is a picture of my elementary school. I came from a lower middle class part of Hawaii, Kalihi Elementary. Uh, let's just say that 
it's not at the top of the rung of the education system in Hawaii. And the arc of my life changed because my sixth grade teacher took my parents aside one day and they told my parents, you know, Guy has too much potential for you to leave him in the public school system. You need to pull him out of the public school system and put him in a college prep school. And if she had not pulled my parents aside and told them that, and if they had not listened to her, I would not be here today. The key to my success then was education. And in my education, this is a picture of my high school English teacher. His name is Harold Keebles. And I have an insight for you that as I look back on my life, the hardest teachers and the hardest bosses taught me the most. I think there's a temptation as you're going through life that you're always looking for the easy route. Who's the easy boss? Who's the easy teacher? How can I get through life with doing as little as possible? But as you reach the end of your life, I think you'll come to the realization that the greatest influences on your life will be the toughest teachers and the toughest bosses. This English teacher, we would write essays. He would mark up the essays with all the errors in it. And then there was a three-step process. You had to write the sentence incorrectly as you did. You had to cite the rule of English grammar that you broke. And then you had to write the sentence correctly. Every error required three steps. So you very quickly learned English grammar and composition. He's the best teacher I ever had, just like Steve Jobs was the best boss that I ever had. The next thing that I learned is that motivation is often dressed up in very highfalutin terms. You want to dent the universe. You want to change the world. You want to end global warming. You want to foster world peace. And I need to fall on my sword a little bit. I'm going to tell you about what motivated me in my youth and what drove me to where I am today. So this is a picture of a bus stop. This bus stop is at a high school in Hawaii called Kaimuki. Uh, Kaimuki is the lower middle class part of Hawaii right off Waikiki. And when I was in high school, I was once robbed at this bus stop. And that was a very formative experience because when I was robbed at that bus stop, I vowed that I would study hard and I would work hard so that I would never have to live in a place where I could be robbed again. Source of motivation number one. This is a picture of a Ferrari Daytona. When I was in college, my roommate came from a very wealthy family from Phoenix, Arizona. Their backyard was the golf course of the Arizona Biltmore Estates. So in college, you sometimes go home with your buddies. So once I went home with him for a weekend, and we went to dinner at the Arizona Biltmore. At the end of the dinner, his mom said, Guy, would you please drive me home in my Ferrari? So I got to drive this car, and I will tell you, that was a life-altering experience. To drive a Ferrari, I said, this is why you need to study, guy. This is why you need to work hard. So while everybody's talking about changing the world, all I wanted to do was change the car. 
My third source of, of motivation. This is a picture of me, and this is a Jackie Chan. Now, it's not the real Jackie Chan, because I have never met the real Jackie Chan. This is in the Wax Museum in Beijing. And I hope I don't violate any copyright or trademark by standing with a wax figure, but this is not the real Jackie Chan. So here's the story. So about 15 years ago, I owned a Porsche 911. And I stop at this light on El Camino in Menlo Park. I'm in this 911, and I look over to the left, and there's a car with four teenage girls in it. And they're giggling, and they're laughing, and they're making eye contact with me. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, guy, you have truly arrived. <laughs> teenage girls know who you are. It's because of your work at Apple, your writing, your speaking, that you founded a hot dot-com company. So I'm sitting there just totally smug. The girl in the front seat says, roll down the window. Clearly not a Porsche owner, because you don't roll down a Porsche window. You press a button. But anyway, I roll down my window. She sticks her head out, and she says to me, are you Jackie Chan? Now, you could take that as an insult, but one of my motivations in life since that day is that one day, Jackie Chan is in his S-Class, or his Maybach, or his Bentley, or his Rolls Royce, and he's at a stoplight in Hong Kong, and he looks to his left, and there's a car with four teenage girls, giggling, smiling, making contact with Jackie Chan. Girl in the front seat, roll down your window. Jackie Chan rolls down the window. Teenage girl in the front says to him, are you Guy Kawasaki? That's the goal. My message here is that, you know what? Don't worry about what motivates you. Just get motivated. Next lesson. You know, I meet with a lot of young people, and a lot of young people have this very lofty expectation of how do you get that job? How do you get in? And I'll tell you, my experience is that in high tech anyway, it doesn't matter how you get into the company. Get in any way that you can. Because what matters is not how you got in, what matters is what you do once you are in. And if you get in as a temporary, if you get in because you're delivering lunches, if you get in because you're testing code, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Get in any way that you can. This is a picture of the first three generations of evangelists in the Macintosh division. The guy on the left is Mike Boitch. He's the first software evangelist. He hired me. The reason why I got hired at Apple is not because of my stellar work experience, nor my stellar educational background, PhD in computer science from Carnegie Mellon, anything like that. I got hired at Apple because Mike Boich was my college roommate. It's his mother who had the Ferrari Daytona. The only reason why I got hired at Apple was nepotism. It was pure and simple nepotism. 
But you know what? That's how I got in. Why I succeeded is for very different reasons. So my message to you as you're facing employment opportunities, thinking of starting companies, thinking of hiring people, don't worry about how people get in. Just worry about what they do once they're in. You know, I think the current HR wisdom is that you always look at people's educational background and work experience for relevance. I'm not saying you should ignore that, but I think you should add a third variable when you are hiring or being hired, which is, do you love what the company is doing? Because when I saw Macintosh for the first time, I was coming from the jewelry business. I literally was schlepping gold and diamonds around the United States. But when I saw Macintosh for that first time, when I saw Mac Paint and Mac Write, for me, it was a religious experience. The clouds parted, angels started to sing. And the reason why I succeeded in the Macintosh division is because I loved Macintosh. So I succeeded despite the lack of the right education and the, light, the right work experience. I will also tell you that I've come to believe that people with the perfect background, education and work, if they don't love what you do, it doesn't matter if they have the perfect background. So the lack of the perfect background can still make you successful. The presence of the perfect background can still make you fail. Just get in. Next lesson is a lesson in life that will help you have a happy life, which is don't look for problems where they don't exist. This is a picture of me standing in front of a house on Union Street in San Francisco. You see that hedge? So about 16 years ago, I lived in this house. This is a very nice house in a very nice part of San Francisco. Union Street dead ends into the Presidio. So it's a, it's a part of San Francisco called Cow Hollow, one of the nicest parts of San Francisco. So one day, I was outside of my house trimming this bougainvillea hedge, trimming it, all right, snipping the branches. This older white woman comes up to me and says, do you do lawns also? <laughs> and I said to her, oh, so I'm Japanese-American, so you figure I'm Japanese-American. I must be the yard man, right? She goes, no, 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 it's not that. It's just you are doing such a great job job at trimming the hedge, I wanted to ask you if you also do lawns. So right there, there's some wisdom, the wisdom about racial profiling. But wait, it gets better. Two weeks later, my father comes and visits me. I'm third generation Japanese American. He's second, served in the U.S. Army, you know, the whole thing. And I tell him this story, and I fully expect him to just go off on her. Right? How dare she ask you if you're the yard man? Does she not realize that you went to Stanford, that you worked for Apple, that you've written five books, but just because you're Japanese, she thinks you're the yard man? He did not say that at all. What he said to me was, son, Japanese guy, cutting a hedge on Union Street, statistically, the probability was that you were the yard man. <laughs> so shut up 
and don't look for problems where they don't exist. Take the high road, give people the benefit of the doubt. And since that day, it's been very hard to offend me. Don't look for problems where they don't exist. Next thing I learned is about grinding it out. If there is a, a secret to my success, it has been my willingness to grind it out. I love to work. I can work anywhere at any time. I just need an internet connection. This is a picture of a hoodie. This hoodie was given to the Macintosh division and it commemorated a spirit. And the spirit was that we were on a mission, a mission to increase people's creativity and productivity. So in 1982 and 1983, we were working 90 hours a week and we were loving it because we weren't trying to simply ship a new personal computer. We were trying to change the world. We were trying to prevent totalitarianism. We were trying to prevent a George Orwellian 1984 world. So it wasn't about shipping another computer. It was about changing the world. And we were doing this 90 hours a week and loving it. We were grinding it out. Next piece of wisdom is to remember your friends. This is a picture of me with Mark Benioff. Mark Benioff is the founder of Salesforce.com. I gave Mark Benioff his first job ever in his career. I gave him a job as a summer intern when I was at Apple and he was at USC. He spent the summer writing assembly language program examples for the Macintosh division. Fast forward 30 years, he is not the intern, he is now the man. Salesforce.com donated hundreds of millions of dollars to medical research. And the story I want to tell you is this. So a few years ago, the son of Mike Boych, the guy who hired me at Apple, mother who owns a Ferrari, the first software evangelist at Macintosh. Mike Boyce's son wanted an interview at Salesforce. I sent an email to Mark. I said, Mark, do you remember Mike Boyce? He now has a son who just graduated from college. He was my boss when I gave you your job at Apple. He wants an interview at Salesforce. And Mark Benioff, bless his heart, in less than an hour made that interview happen. Fast forward another couple years. My son graduates. My son says he wants an interview at salesforce.com. Sends an email to Mark Benioff again. Bless his heart. In less than an hour, my son had an interview at Salesforce. And let me tell you something. This was really meaningful to me because 30 years earlier, I gave him an internship and he never ever forgot that. There are lots of people in Silicon Valley who would have not answered that email, much less gotten our son's interviews and eventually jobs at salesforce.com. Remember your friends. Next thing I learned, you know, lots of people ask me, so what is the key to evangelism, guy? You've evangelized Macintosh, now you're evangelizing Canva. You know, what is the key? So I want to explain a concept called Guy's Golden Touch. Guy's Golden Touch is not whatever I touch turns to gold. Guy's Golden Touch is whatever is gold, Guy touches. <laughs> this is a picture 
of the moment that I met the co-founders of Canva. How many of you use Canva in this room? Yeah, so Canva is an online graphics design service. And what it enables you to do is create great graphics. Every one of you can create great graphics. Uh, a nice way to think of Canva is that, you know, in the time it takes you to, to boot Photoshop, you could finish a graphic in Canva. So when people ask me, so what's the key to evangelism? Is it an outgoing personality? Is it the ability to shock and jive and network? Is it the ability to do a great demo? Is it persistence? What is the key to evangelism? The key to evangelism is to evangelize great stuff. Because it's very easy to evangelize great stuff. It is very hard to evangelize crap. The key to evangelism is to find create, align yourself with great stuff. Evangelism comes from Greek words meaning bring the good news. So what an evangelist does is bring the good news. I brought the good news of Macintosh. It makes people more creative and productive. I'm bringing the news of Canva. It makes everybody into a graphic designer. So if you want to evangelize something, it starts with that something has to be good news that it empowers people, it makes people's lives better, that it changes the world. Next thing that I learned is you have to continue to learn. You know, when I was younger, I thought, oh, so learning stops when you get your degree. You know, you, you, you get your degree, you, you march down in the commencement ceremony, and bada-bing, bada-bang, learning is over. Now it's just reaping, and it's making money for the rest of your life. And I found that to be absolutely untrue. If you want to optimize your life, you have to continue to learn. I like to use sports examples. So this is me about two years ago. And let's just say, if you know anything about surfing, this is not the ideal position. <laughs> so at the age of 62, I decided to take up surfing. That is roughly 58 years too late. And I took up surfing because my daughter took up surfing. This is a picture of me surfing with my daughter. And the message here is that, you know what? Surfing is probably the hardest thing I've ever tried to learn. It is way too late to do it at 62. But you know what? It can be done. The message is continue to learn. Learning is a process. It is not an event. Continue to learn. Next thing I learned, a little piece of wisdom is in life, you have to do what it takes. I'll tell you an example. So I once had a book called Enchantment, and I ran a crowdsource cover contest. And so I went on social media and I told people, I'm running a cover contest, submit your cover design to me. And I'm going to pick one and pay $1,000 for the cover. And what happened was very interesting. So a lot of professional graphic artists complained that I was exploiting their industry. Because what I was essentially doing was asking hundreds and hundreds of graphic designers to create covers, submit them to me, and I would only pay one. So one person would be adequately rewarded. Everybody else, I screwed. That's not how I look at it. I looked at it like I am opening it up 
for true meritocracy. I don't care if you work for a large firm. I don't care if you have a degree in graphic design. I just want a great cover. Anybody can enter. And so my attitude was, if you want to succeed in life, you do what it takes. If, if you can enter a graphic design contest to show off your talent, you enter. You know, I speak 50 to 75 times a year. Many of my speeches I give for free. But the more you speak, the more you speak. Because someone here, for example, may say, oh, I heard Guy talk at TNW 2019. He would be very good for my spouse's company's meeting. And so speakers give away speeches for free. Hackers ent ha enter hackathons. And so my message here is that it is not about how you succeeded. You do what it takes. And this is an example. This is a picture of me with Richard Branson. Richard and I were in Moscow together to speak at a conference. Richard comes into the speaker ready room and he says to me, Guy, do you fly on Virgin? And I said, Richard, I'm United Airlines Global Service. I don't know how you get to be Global Service. I don't want to jeopardize my Global Service status because if you're United Global Service, even United becomes a tolerable airline. <laughs> and when I said this, this is what he did. He got down on his knees and he started polishing my shoes. Other than that picture, I've never seen Steve Jobs get down on his knees for anybody. Richard Branson, billionaire, owner of an island, windsurfs with Barack Obama, Knight, gets down on his knees to get another passenger for Virgin. This is the moment I started flying on Virgin America. And the lesson here is that, you know what? If Richard Branson can get on his knees and do what it takes, all of us can get on our knees and do what it takes. Now, you may be wondering, why is this picture so lousy? And I have to say, I completely agree with you. So what happened was, I didn't ex exactly expect Richard to get on his knees and start polishing my shoes. So when he did this, I handed my camera to someone in the room. I said, take this picture. This is such a great moment. And the camera was set to manual focus at that point. And so this person just picked up the camera and snapped the picture. And one of my big regrets is that I don't have an in-focus version of this picture. I may have to recreate this picture one day. The point is, do what it takes. And this is my last piece of wisdom for you. This is not something about politics or drugs, okay? I'm not suggesting you get high and to the right in that sense at all. I guess I'm in Amsterdam, though, so maybe the get high part is okay. So I want to give you what I consider the only graph you need to chart your life, to chart how you create a product, how you create a service, how you position yourself as an employer, as an employee, how you find dates, how you get happily married, how you do everything in life can be explained with this one chart. In this chart, there are two axes. The vertical axis measures your degree of uniqueness, your differentiation. The horizontal axis measures the value of what you bring to the party. 
There are four corners in this two-by-two -two matrix. Some big consulting firms would charge you $5 million to tell you you need to be in the upper right-hand corner. You're getting it free here today at TNW 2019. So let us go through all the corners. In the bottom right corner, we have the corner where you do something useful, valuable. You're Michael Dell, right? You make Dell computers. But you know what? A Dell computer is fundamentally Windows on hardware that any other manufacturer could buy. So yes, it's valuable, but it is not unique. In that corner, you always have to compete on price. Same operating system, same hardware, you have to compete on price. In the upper left-hand corner, that's a corner where you are truly unique, You're completely differentiated. Only you do what's done in that corner. You own a market that doesn't exist. In that corner, you are just plain stupid. In the bottom left corner, you are stupid, and it's crowded where you're stupid. Because in that corner, you have created something that's not valuable, and stupid people like me in Silicon Valley have funded other stupid companies that do the same stupid, non-valuable thing. A great example of this is Pets.com, buying dog food online. Buying dog food online. Why was it not valuable? Yes, dog food was cheaper online because there's no retailer, but you had to add back shipping and handling. So what you discounted because there's no retailer, you had to add back with shipping and handling. And then somebody had to be at home when the dead cow in the can was delivered to your house. So it was less convenient, just as expensive, not valuable. Why was it not unique? Well, many of you are entrepreneurs, so I'm gonna give you a lesson in pitching. This is something you should never do, what I'm about to do. Never, ever do. 300 million Americans, one in four owns a dog. 75 million own dogs in America. Each dog eats two cans of dog food per day. And dogs eat every day. We are not talking B2B here. We're talking B2C. Dogs eat every day. More accurately, B2D. Dogs eat every day. So we take 150 million cans of dog food, and with my rock star co-founder, how hard could it be to get 1% of that market? That's one and a half million cans of dog food per day, 365 days a year. We're talking five or 600 million cans of dog food per year. Conservatively speaking, worst case. And because of that pitch, there was Pets.com, MyPets.com, ePets.com, LastMinutePets.com, DiscountPets.com. There are 10 ways to buy dog food online. Less convenient, just as expensive. The corner that you want to be in, whether you're designing a product, a service, positioning yourself in life, in dating, whatever it is, is that iPod corner. In the iPod corner, you are valuable and you are unique. Why was iPod valuable and unique? Because at the time, iPod had a user interface that a mere mortal could operate. You could get a wide selection of music from the six largest music publishers. It was legal, and it was 99 cents. Those factors made iPod not only valuable, but also unique. And that explains the success of iPod. So as you create your products, you create your services, as you position yourself as an employer or an employee, it's all about getting high and to the right. How are you valuable? 
and how are you unique. If you are valuable but not unique, you will always have to compete on price. If you are unique but not valuable, you are just plain stupid. If you're not unique and not valuable, you are stupid and you are not alone. The corner you want to be in is the unique and valuable corner. That's where history is made, margins made, profits made, money's made. That's where you dent the universe. And this is a collection of my top 10 wisdoms in a life of technology. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Where's Boris? I'm here, I'm here. Um, thank you. That was an expiring uh, talk. Uh, I'm proud you've been a childhood uh, icon for me. And uh, I, I think it's great that we have the 14th edition and that we can open with Jackie Chan. Thank you. So uh, there's just a few uh, questions I want to ask. Uh, and the first one is um, uh, the theme of the conference. And the tagline for our company is the heart of tech. Uh, I always thought that the Macintosh wasn't really about the technology, but much more about the humanity. Can you say yeah. something about that? So, yeah, I, I think that, uh, well, certainly Apple proves this, that fundamentally it's about the emotion. It is about the reaction. The, I, I don't think people wake up in the morning saying, I want to buy tech. I think they want music, they want entertainment, they want productivity, they want beauty. And so I think your theme fits right in, that you have to separate the features of a technology from the benefits of the technology, yeah. and it's all about the benefits of technology. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you left Apple, uh, someone once asked you, like, why did you leave Apple? And then you said, because I started to believe my own bullshit, yes. which I thought was a beautiful quote from someone as influential as that. Uh, can you talk about that self-reflection a little bit for the people in the room like me who are, might be able, might start to believe their own bullshit? Well, yeah, so uh, I left Apple twice in my career. Uh, both times to start companies. And so, you know, part of being an entrepreneur is you have to be somewhat delusional. You have to believe in your own bullshit. Because if you didn't believe in your bullshit, how can you possibly get anybody else to believe in your bullshit? So, uh, I think it's a necessary, though not necessarily sufficient, quality of entrepreneurship that you do have to believe your bullshit. And, but then you have to make it true. And I think that's one of the keys to the success of Silicon Valley, is that we believe our own bullshit, and in many cases, we can also make the bullshit come true. All right, last question. Yes. Um, of course, you're, you're known as a marketeer. You, you uh, popularized evangelism. Yes. Uh, but then now you're a writer. Like, what's next? Is the, what's next gonna, for me? Yeah. So uh, as I told you, I'm 64 years old. I have four children. My children are, let's see, 25, 23, 17, and 13. So the 25 and 23 are out. We had two IPOs, if you will. So the 17 and 13, who's going to go surfing with you? The 17 and 13 are both living with us still. And I will tell you that uh, I have come to the conclusion that I need to spend as much time as I can with them. So I'm not interested in starting any more companies, doing anything more like that. Really, I just want to spend time with my kids and surf. <laughs> That's all I really want to do. All right. Let's all right. go surf. Thank you very much. Thank you, Guy Kawasaki. Have a great time. Thank you. Thank you.